Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we are very excited to welcome to the podcast Margaret Peacock and Eric Peterson, who are both associate professors at the University of Alabama and who have also co written a book that just came out titled A Deeper Sickness, a Journal of America and the Pandemic Year, which was released by Beacon Press uh, last March, last March being two, two months ago. Uh, so, Margaret and Eric, thank you. So much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, great. So before um, we get into the book, why don't we just start at the beginning? What made you both want to write something like this, particularly as historians who you know don't usually focus uh, on projects like this that emphasize sort of the contemporary day-to-day minutia of living through COVID? Why did you decide to do this besides the fact that everyone was supposed to write their own King Lear during COVID? Is this your <laughs> King Lear? And if not, why this book? You know, that's a great question. This project found us. Um, So I teach history of science and medicine at the University of Alabama, and I teach a class specifically on the history of epidemics in world history. Um, I was prepping to rewrite the syllabus like I do every year or so. And I thought, you know, there's this big gaping hole in the syllabus. I teach everything right up to the, the HIV epidemic in the 1980s, but I really don't have anything after that point. And I thought it's time now to revamp this syllabus, let's find a more recent epidemic. Oh, well, there was this SARS epidemic in 2002, 2003. I started to do that by happenstance in January of 2020, right when news started coming out in in China that, hey, there's this suspicious pneumonia. And at least on one x-ray scan in December of 2019, one of the physicians, a woman named Ai Feng, wrote down SARS and circled it. And that was where the sort of first news came out. But of course, in the West, almost no one was paying attention to any of this. So I thought, ah, this would be an interesting experience to sort of close out my course. Maybe I can just grab some sources from Weibo or other Chinese media sources or the South China Sea News or something like that. And I can just show it on like the last couple of days of class. And we could talk about how a modern pandemic plays out. And then January kept going. And then February started and and nothing was getting better. And all these sources I collected started moving from China to Vietnam to Japan and the Diamond Princess cruise ship. And then suddenly there were cases in Germany and then Italy, of course. And that by that point, it was the end of February. Um, Our university shut down and Margaret and I had a conversation after a faculty meeting when we were kind of like, what do we do? And it turned out she was doing something quite similar. So you want to jump in and talk about what you were working on? Yeah, so you know, I'm I'm a Russian historian by training, but I uh, deal a lot with sort of the history of American and Russian Soviet foreign policy in the 20th century, and particularly the history of propaganda. Um, the, you know, on both sides of the Iron Curtain, and was really ex- interested in beginning to examine uh, how the conversation about China was unfolding um, in January and February and how folks were talking about the Chinese virus and the ways that medicine and propaganda and, you know, xenophobia and racism were all sort of intersecting in those early months. Um, And I started to collect, just like Eric started to collect basically primary sources. Uh, And then at this, at this random meeting that we had right after the shutdown uh, I think Eric, you mentioned to me that you were collecting primary sources, maybe to put together something for you know, like a primary yeah. source volume for Oxford or something. At some point down the road, right? Yeah, and then I said, "Well, I'm kind of doing the same thing." Um, and that very night, literally within a few minutes, I sent an email off to the history editor at Oxford and sort of said, "Hey, we've had this idea," and um, that was you know on a Friday night at midnight, um, and we woke up on Saturday morning at six a.m. She had written back which is weird, right? That never happens. <laughs> right. um, and uh, so at that point, I realized we needed to get an agent, um, that this was actually probably a really good topic to be writing on. Uh, and so we found an agent um, and ended up actually really, really redesigning the book. Um, by the time March rolled around, you know, the, the, the COVID experience had become something 
all consuming for everyone. It was, it was defining every facet of everyone's existence. And in those last months in March, uh, we were, you know, scrambling as you guys were, right? You were at Washington. I'm sure it was the same. You were on the West Coast, right? Where it, or one of the first places where it hit. So you were seeing it even before the rest of us, Danny. But the, um, you know, there was the scramble to figure out how to find housing for students who had all of a sudden been kicked out and couldn't go home, right? Or how to deal with students who didn't have access to the internet, but still needed to turn in final assignments. Um, so there was this massive scramble to sort of accommodate that. And then this sudden isolation that we all sort of, you know, experienced, at which point, um, Eric and I pulled together all the journaling that we had been doing, um, and all of the conversations we had already been having with folks who were working it, like, in the fray of it, uh, and then just started to write. And wouldn't you know it, the book sold to Beacon pretty quickly. I, I appreciated this book as a, as a sort of, as a chronicle of this, you know, year under the pandemic. And I, it made me think of uh, being in grad school, where one of my favorite things to do was just kind of park myself in the library and read chronicles, not purposefully, which is probably has something to do with the me not getting a degree, uh, <laughs> like not finishing the degree, uh, but just to sit there and read through them, like on the you know on their own sort of merits. Yeah. Um, and I, I, it it struck me as I was reading this that I was you know it was it was something like that. Um, I'm curious uh, as somebody who writes a, a daily newsletter myself and is sort of always trying to force myself to not get so caught up in the day to day minutia that I, I kind of lose track of the big picture. You're both historians. You're both, uh, you know, trained to kind of take the chronicle and pull out the larger story or the theme uh, from it. And I, I wonder if you kind of struggled with that at all while you were doing this, or if it was uh, very natural to do it, if you if you also kind of uh, had to stop every once in a while and, and say, you know, okay, uh, I'm, you know, I've done this for a month, but like, what is the bigger thing that's going on here and not just the uh, the day-to-day nitty-gritty. I, I totally identify with you, Derek. I also just read these sort of chronicles and <laughs> Daniel Defoe's Journal of a Plague Year was one of the sort of pole stars that began this project. It's to give credit where credit's due. It's Margaret who keeps saying, come on, Eric, like we can't just keep going down into the weeds. We have to give the answer to the so what question. And I think we finally, it was it was probably in May where we developed this system where she did over and over again, sort of pulled us up and made us refocus the lens on. So why does any of this actually matter? Yeah, you can keep going down and down and down into rabbit holes, but at some point you have to get up and look around and say, why is there any significance to this? And it was hard to do it every single day. As you're mentioning, just, just the compilation of the information was itself like trying to drink out of a fire hydrant. And then to give some greater significance rather than just listing all of the headlines in a, in a given day. It was a huge challenge. And again, credit to Margaret for keeping the, the ship afloat for the entire thing. Well, one of the, one of the things actually that interested me about this project, which had a parallel with the scholarly work that I'm, I'm currently writing another book on the history of propaganda in the Middle East in the second half of the 20th century and one of the things that has struck me in that research is that, you know, historians really love to give the bird's eye view, right? We like to, we like to pilfer from chronicles or from primary sources and then tell these grand narratives as mm. though stories go from A to B to C to D. Mm. And there's this clear, obvious narrative to, to history. But if you think about it, and the pandemic was such a great example of this, the experience of a, of a, of a, of those moments is not at all chronological. It's mm. it's filled with chaos. Most of the time you actually have, while you're living through it, you have no idea what matters and what doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, some, remember the murder hornets? You guys remember that? We're, we we thought murder <laughs> hornets were going to be a thing. Yeah. Remember that? Up there in, um, in your neighborhood in the Pacific Northwest, that's where the yeah, murder hornets were. These were. new scary killer yeah. bees that were going to eat us all alive. Like it turns out not so, not so much, right? Murder hornet's uh, not a big deal. Not a big thing, turns out. <laughs> that was during COVID. Know. There was a murder hornet thing. 
Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Wait, you didn't yeah. so know I don't... about the murder hornets? You're like right there. <laughs> Wait, is that a, see I don't I don't pay attention to mainstream news. I mean, this is I think and and that's what's oh, also But the murder hornets were way off of the mainstream news. There were memes for almost the entire month of April yeah. 2020 just on murder hornets. I don't remember. My favorite was honeybees preparing for the murder hornets and you see like a meme with all these honeybees flying with like toilet paper and masks and hand sanitizer and vodka back into their hive. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh. Anyway, right. The point is that we, one of the things we wanted to do explicitly with this project was to embrace the chaos of it. Right. And yeah. to acknowledge really openly um, how, how hard it was to actually understand the, the yeah. larger meanings of things, how hard it is when you're living through an event, through a catastrophic event, how hard it is to, make sense of it and, and to understand what matters and what doesn't matter to see the, the great sort of thread that pulls it all together. We did try, right? We tried really hard. And, and the, the thing, right, the big thread that pulled it all together ultimately was through, came through looking at American history, right? Mm -hmm. Diving back into the larger systemic, deeper sicknesses, right? That led us into the chaos that we were in. So ultimately, in order to make any meaning of it, we had to go back in time again and again and again and trace the deeper causes for why we were finding ourselves in that horrendous situation. Do you know that old joke that people say the historian's question, uh, the historian's response is, uh, it's actually more complicated and started earlier. <laughs> right. you know, yeah. I feel like that's the, that's, <laughs> that's the classic exactly historian's right. response. Right. So Absolutely. I do want to get to that, that issue of American exceptionalism in American history. But before we do, I, I, I want to pose a question because one of the things reading through the book, it just, it just really underlined to me, like, like, like you both just said, there are all these things that people were frenzied about for a few days or a week and then they go away. And, and it, that's really the condition of modernity in a sense is that we have all of this information uh it's coming at us constantly uh, particularly if you're in a bourgeois or professional space it really occupies you um i think partially because there is no real politics in this country anymore politics has basically become culture war um in the sense that we don't have meaningful political institutions um already defining democracy as voting is a very weak understanding of democracy and now as many many studies have shown there's almost no connection between public opinion and policy. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there, there's almost no connection. So I was wondering, so, so, and, and like I just said, I don't pay that much attention to like CNN or MSNBC and, and things like though. And even, even more recently, like the quote unquote papers of record, I find them to be mm -hmm. not especially useful for understanding a lot of what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering if, 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 um, maybe I could just pose um, a, a question, maybe a little bit of a, a criticism, but not really, because I just want to get your, your take on it. Um, how does doing something like this not reproduce that moment of frenzy in a sense that, that, that is, doesn't necessarily lead to greater understanding of what's going on, but sort of living in the daily frenzy. So I remember I was reading the George Floyd, um, part recently, and it's like, everyone's like really on with the fund, the police. And it, it, I don't, I'm not sure that's necessarily true. It might feel like it in the moment, but I'm not sure that that was necessarily the effect of it. So, how does one deal with all this information in a way that doesn't just feel political, but is actually political? Because we talk about nothing but politics and nothing changes. So I was just wondering if you could address that question. So, yeah, I can take that. I mean, I would push back a little bit, um, you know, just having public opinion, the relationship, the, regardless of whether or not public opinion is shaping policy, um, understanding public opinion still matters. Um, and, uh, like understanding, um, the things that make people frenzied, um, is, is a critical way of understanding where a culture sits at any given moment. Um, so let me put it this way. Would the alternative be not to pay attention to that frenzy? Uh, because at that point. So the, the question is we have a news media built on clicks. Uh, and I would say that that the, the American history, particularly since the 1940s, has been defined by moving from crisis to crisis to crisis. I think that's endemic to liberalism. Um, I think when liberalism defeated fascism and tried to eventually to defeat communism, like one of the things that it did, one of the ways that it maintains hegemony is just to move from crisis to crisis by basically not allowing people to get its bearings. I think that's endemic to 19th century liberalism and further. So I guess that would be my point, right? Like it's it's there's always information in the world to make one frightened. Um, and that is, I think, the condition of living in liberal modernity. So th that is the critique. So I'm sorry to sure. interrupt. I just wanted to clarify. 
Right. No, understood. So yeah, my, I mean, my answer to that would be absolutely right there. We live in a, what we call outrage culture, right? Where we just move from one scandal to the next. Um, and, you know, the looking back now on 2020, one can see really explicitly how that outrage just managed to, you know, be, it, it provided an outlet for people's anger, but didn't actually provide an avenue for real systemic change, right? That we, we, we in fact see that um, the policing of black and brown bodies has gotten worse, not better since 2020, right? The the police have not been defunded. You know, actually, they're they're getting more money than they've ever gotten <laughs> By before. any stretch, they have been refunded. <laughs> they've been refunded. They've been up one up, right? So <laughs> yeah. there, there's no question that that is absolutely the case. At the same time, um, it seems valid to acknowledge, first of all, in the book, we do this, right? We say, oh, over and over again, there's, this seems to be a, a moment where there's a potential for great change, particularly after George Floyd. It's, you know, we're, here we have millions of people out on the streets every day. It seemed like this was going to be a final shift, like a real shifting of the ground that we have failed to see over and over again. At the same time, in the book, we, we talk about all the other commissions to deal with race violence that going back, you know, throughout American history over and over and over again that have failed um, there's a really great, that really great source from the Truman Commission, Eric, that you found, um, that look, reads like it could have been written in 2020, but in fact was written in what, 1948? 48. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but, you know, it reads like it could have just been written right then. So there's a, we're definitely acknowledging on the one hand that this outrage, that all this virtue signaling is just that, um, and, and that the scandal is there. At the same time, we want to acknowledge that we're living in it and we do feel it and we are experiencing it. And, you know, one of the phenomena, one of the unique experiences of the pandemic was that we were all stuck at home. And I'm sure, Derek and Daniel, you had the same experience where we were just stuck at home staring at screens. I mean, if we were lucky enough, you know, to be able to be at home, right? We weren't, if we weren't essential workers and like we were professors like we are, you know, we were, we were stuck at home you know, just stirring in this pot of outrage day after day after day. And what did that pot of outrage do to us? What did it do, you know, to the world as we saw it? I never paid attention to Twitter. I never paid attention to social media before 2020. And then all of a sudden it was the one, one of the few outlets that I had to look at the outside world because I couldn't walk outside my front door. Eric, did you have anything or? uh... I mean, the, the, Sound and the fury signifying nothing is what you're <laughs> you're sort of you're sort of complaining about, and you're attaching that to liberalism in some sense. But really, when you look at 15th century, 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, and 19th century experiences of the world, you see something quite similar. I think part of our job as historians isn't trying to construct the world as we wish that it was, but reporting on the way that the world actually presents itself to us. And that is one of the things that we were trying to do in our very incomplete way. And with all the caveats that Margaret expressed that, look, we were as confused as everybody else. And we were just writing down the stuff that that happened. In that sense, it was kind of a chronicle. But I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is that people are frantically trying to make meaning out of their worlds. I mean, that is just like whatever the human condition is. That's it, right? Like we're constantly trying to make meaning. And if no one ever tabulates what the attempt at making meaning has been, then there's no possible way we can ever look back, learn from it, and change the future. Then that means that we are just stuck with sound and fury signifying nothing forever and ever. Amen. So it might have been an incomplete and it absolutely was an inadequate attempt at capturing whatever the zeitgeist was at the moment. But if no one captures the zeitgeist, guys at the moment, then we can't elect to change it. We just continue to stumble sleepwalking through our daily lives. So that was our tiny and again, absolutely flawed attempt at putting some kind of stake down in the ground in 2020, even though, yeah, it was inadequate, even though, yeah, it was a lot of people screaming about stuff that they had no intention of actually changing. We should add, right, that we perceived of this project right from the beginning as being a primary source, right? Yeah. So right from the beginning, we we conceived of the project as something that maybe historians down the down, you know, decades from now could use as a primary source, um, as a way to look back at, you know, how how admittedly, right, two white history professors in America um right. 
who were just standing in front of the fire hose, um, how they experienced it and how they interpreted it, right? So how did we see it and understand the meaning of it while it was happening? I mean, we all know that there are going to be, there's going to, this is going to become a field, right? There are going to be thousands and thousands of books that are going to get written on the pandemic. Historians are going to devote their professional lives down the line, right? To telling this story and to understanding it. There will be dissertations. (laughs) With, you know, from, from a better, from an easier perspective that's, that's, that's in the future somewhere. And, and maybe this, book will provide you know a critical primary source for their work um so that's thinking there so you guys mentioned that that one of the ways that you tried to to kind of maintain a a a bigger picture outlook on what was happening was to connect back to american history you know kind of deeper themes in american history i'm curious uh, as you were doing that, what were the things that that sort of stuck out to you and and uh, that you kind of uh, took away from that is this where I say sound and fury signifying nothing? Um, so, <laughs> well, the coasts really dominate a lot. So the perspective of New York, Boston, DC, LA, San Francisco, and Seattle, and Chicago, and to a certain extent, Miami, and a little bit New Orleans and Houston. But those cities kind of dominate what Americans talk about and think about. So the other 98% of the land mass on that part of the continent anyway, uh, doesn't really make it into the national consciousness at all. And we were definitely writing from that perspective of a relatively small town in the deep South. And we learned how idiosyncratic to a certain extent, our experience really was. And yet, you know, modern American culture has smoothed a lot of the rough regional edges off of things. And so to a certain extent, we were experiencing things just like, Many other, not all, but many other people were experiencing during the pandemic. So I think both the knowing that we had somewhat different lens and knowing that our lens was actually quite similar to other people's, like that was, I think, one of the perspectives that we learned that we didn't know early on. Um, I learned a lot about American history since I'm not an American historian. I mostly study British history. And one of the things I learned is that the way that American history books are written contributes to the American exceptionalism that Americans feel. Uh, We write things as if the United States is the only country in the world, or at least the only country that really matters. And that became glaringly obvious to us as we were doing some of the research for this book, that other things were happening and have happened similarly in other places in the world. And yet Americans just kind of don't know that and don't make reference to any of that other stuff that's happened anywhere else. I think, at least for me, another one of the... um, I won't call it hopeless, but definitely um, a more negative sense that I got from doing this project really came about on the last day of the year, on December 31st of 2000, where Margaret and I were trying to think about, okay, so how do you sum up a whole year? What Are, what, are we going to be able to put a ribbon around this entire project? And so we actually drove to Lowndes County, Alabama, which is a county that appears in several of the different entries in the book. And though I'd been through Lowndes a couple of times, I didn't really understand the importance of that county in the civil rights movement. Um, that is, the when we talk about the crossing of the Edmund Pettus Bridge and the famous scene where the Alabama state troopers are beating on the civil rights marchers, including most famously John Lewis. And then we talk about the March on Montgomery from Selma, but we just use that point A and point B in the conversation. We don't talk about the actual route that they took. The route is through Lowndes County. Almost nobody knows that, which is weird. And so that's what we did on that last day of the year. We just traversed that route from Selma to Montgomery. Lowndes County is a place that is so poor by any standards that the UN sent a special commission a few years ago that compared Lowndes County to places in South America and Southeast Asia as one of the poorest places on planet Earth, not just in the United States and planet Earth, where there's open sewage in the streets and places. There are dirt floors. There are people living in shanty towns, effectively, inside the United States. We're not talking about, you know, someplace in the Caribbean that's been hit by a hurricane or something. And to see that kind of poverty with your own eyes, especially as a person who grew up in in cities in in the North, is really, really disturbing because you think the way that we talk about American history as if the civil rights movement accomplished something, 
Did it win voting rights? Yes, it did. Did it do anything economically for people that actually need it in the South? And go to Lowndes County and then try to answer that question affirmatively. I just don't know the people in New York who can stand out there and yell Black Lives Matter give a shit about Lowndes County, Alabama, where there are mostly Black lives that are told every single day that they don't matter a goddamn bit to the people living in Manhattan, right? That's one of the things I learned the most by seeing it with my own eyes. And I mean, I would encourage any of your listeners, come to the black belt. If you want to do something in America, don't sit in Seattle, don't go to San Francisco, and don't just march Black Lives Matter. Come to where there are black lives and then try to make them matter because hardly anybody does. Hardly anybody does. Sorry, I went on a rant. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I grew up in Alabama. Um, I grew up down the street from here. Um, Never thought I would come back, but you know how getting a tenure track job goes, you you go where the job is. And um, so I ended up coming home. So for me, you know, this, the, the, the poverty of the deep South is not surprising. Um, You know, sort of lived in it my whole life. Um, What I think you know, I think though that there were there were some hard lessons that we did learn. Um, you know, it, it, one of the one of the sort of the in the weeds lessons we learned was that uh, the ways that race um, and the ways that race and economics and disease intersect, um, in really showed up as intersecting in the lived experience of the pandemic. So um, there was a clear correlation between. Counties that were living in abject poverty, like Lowndes County, um, and high in, high incidences of of mortality, um, and and also uh, really low high school graduation rates, and um, you know low access to healthcare, and you know low access to uh, employment. Um, so all of those factors profoundly impacted each other. So it, it it was a way to sort of see on the ground on the you know on a day to day basis how that was unfolding um, for populations living all over the place. So I spent a whole day meandering um, through Lowndes and Butler counties, through the counties in South Alabama, um, trying to actually see how many testing clinics, for instance, they had that were open. And wouldn't you know it, online it looked like they had them, but in reality, not. You know, they, there was nowhere to get tested. And if you wanted to get tested for COVID, you had to figure out how to get 50 miles to Montgomery. And sadly, in the previous two or three years, all of the driver's license issuing offices had been shut down by the Alabama legislature. So populations who were living in Lowndes and Butler and those, those, those counties in the, in the Black Belt couldn't even get driver's licenses in order to be able to, you know, maybe get a car in order to be able to maybe get to Montgomery in order to be able to maybe get those tests done. I mean, of course, there's no public transportation. There's no real way to get around otherwise. And, you know, we, we all know that the shutting down of the driver's license offices um, had, had didn't have anything to do with the pandemic at the time um, and had everything to do with with voting rights, right? With with circumscribing how populations in those counties who are largely African American, how they get to voting pol- to polling centers uh, if they don't have a car and they don't have a driver's license, which you now have to have a photo ID in order to be able to vote. So you know, there's there's this whole web of superstructures set in place in order to make sure that those populations, um, you know, don't have access to voting rights, that they continue to be gerrymandered, but also we learned in 2020 don't have access to viable healthcare and thus are dying at significantly higher rates than anyone else was at like at the correlative counties, for instance, in the North of Alabama that are largely white um, had access to, um, or, or in the, on the, coasts, right, where, where that kind of access was relatively easier. Although, you know, we know for a fact that, you know, there, that there, were, there were communities in Virginia where you are, Derek, that, you know, were having those kind, similar kinds of issues, um, you know, so we, we know that it was happening everywhere or in North Carolina, right, Danny, where you did, where you went to school. So, you know, it's, it was a national phenomenon. The, the, less, the big lesson, I think, that we tried to sort of take from the book that we talked about in the conclusion, um, well, except then January the 6th. January 6th happened. January 6th happened, yeah. and that became the conclusion. But anyway, right. um, before, we called it December the 37th because yeah. we figured, you it's, know. <laughs> 2020 was such a terrible year that it kept going. <laughs> yeah, we called January the 6th, December the 37th. Um, anyway, the, the real lesson we tried to take from it was that 
you know, there's this, there was this vision of American exceptionalism of America as a grand land, very much based on a whitewashed history of the United States that um, is frantic, for instance, not to talk about the history of slavery, not interested in not talking about the history of um, how systemic racism continues to impact us, particularly after the civil rights movement, right? It's okay to talk about how bad slavery was. It's okay to talk about maybe a little bit about how bad Jim Crow was, but we all have to agree that after the civil rights, right. The I um, have a dream speech ended everything. (laughs) Racism didn't exist in the United States anymore. Uh, And, and so, you know, that, that whole mantra, which has been come wrapped up in the culture wars over critical race theory, um, that whole mantra, you know, is, is, is in existence in order to prop up a mythological version of American history that is itself is tied to a particular kind of identity building for, for white America. Um, and the, the irony that we, that we point to in the book, I think, and the irony that the pandemic really drew out was that the longer we hold on to that mythology, the sicker we will become that the mythology doesn't actually make us stronger Although so many people are so frantic to hold on to it in order to sort of preserve some semblance of order and and happiness in the United States, the truth is that unless you face it, you're you're just these these continuous perennial problems of race violence, of you know um, income inequality, of people dying of disease, <laughs> healthcare access inequality, right? All of those problems are going to just continue to perpetuate yeah. and get worse, right? So the only way that we actually make it better is by looking honestly at where we came from. Hey, everyone, it's Jake. Just a couple of quick plugs here. First, our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. Even if you're not a paid subscriber, sign up for our free list. We've got free videos, discussion threads, and lots of other cool content coming out for everybody. So AmericanPrestigePod.com. I also want to plug the podcast Left Reckoning. It's hosted by Matt Leck and David Griscom. Matt and David are Michael Brooks Show alumni. That's how I know them. And Matt, of course, was on Majority Report. Left Reckoning is cool. It's got its own flavor. They work to cover and build a strong, popular working class route no BS socialists left. And with a special focus on the international struggle and Texas, the South, and the West, Dave and Matt cover working class movements today and revisit often forgotten left-wing history in the U.S., which we here at American Prestige can totally appreciate. The show premieres each Wednesday at 7 o'clock Central Time on YouTube and as a podcast the next day, along with an interactive Q&A stream with David each Tuesday afternoon. So please check them out. Margaret, thank you very much for that. So that leads me directly to this question was, so my question is, what is the causal force that that ideology you just described actually plays in American history? Because I remember, um, particularly after the George Floyd protests, there was um, an efflorescence and explosion in in quote unquote anti-racist books and things like Robin DiAngelo and things along those lines. And it doesn't seem, it seems like that is basically used as an excuse to, for people to, you know, have refugees welcome here signs and not actually make the deep structural changes that would actually be required to do things like effective voting rights or to make material redistributions of it. So I was just wondering what what role do you think, what actual causal role this discussion about race, which has we've been having in this country for a long time, which is ironic because so many people always say that we have to have a discussion. It seems like that's what we've been doing for quite a while, but the structural conditions don't really change. What do you think is the causal role these things actually play in um, our history, our, our contemporary life? Oh, yeah. Talking about it is is just bullshit. I mean, excuse me, but just talking about it over and over and over again, um, you know, the virtue signaling, the, t- the making of your Facebook page all black, you know, to show like as somehow that be your, your activity to support African-American rights in the United States for the day or all of that silliness that happened um, from the corporate world, you know, like on Juneteenth in 2020, like all of that was, you know, it was, that's just rooted in capitalist, like the capitalist monopolist mobilization of, of cultural tropes in order to sell shit. Like that's what that is um, <laughs> in order to make profit. Uh, it, has, it has nothing to do with an actual interest in social shifting or social change. You know, Amazon made its screens black and then it doesn't allow anyone to unionize. Right. Right. Um, so 
we, we see that hypocrisy left and right. So no, I agree with you, Danny, the just talking about it is ridiculous. And maybe, um, and I mean, I hope to God that this book, if anything, is saying that, right? That just talking about it isn't enough. Uh, you know, I mean, if we want to really go there, all of these structures, the racist structures in the United States, the economic inequality structures that perpetuate over and over again, all of them are rooted in, you know, a deep-seated effort to maintain the status quo, right? The economic status quo, uh, to make sure that the wealthy continue to get wealthy um, and that, you know, particular populations get excluded from access to the growth of wealth um, in order to ensure that that the rich continue to stay rich. Um, so on some level, maybe we're looking at a situation where an honest critique of the capitalist structures that build the United States are, is required um, and then an actual, you know, pretty scary I'm not going to say redistribution of wealth, but a real, you know, like a, I'm not going to say that, but you know, like a real acknowledgement that, um, for instance, viable taxing, real taxing needs to happen in this country. Um, you know, maybe reparations is really a thing that actually needs to be talked about in an honest and sincere way, right? Maybe these are conversations that we need to be having. We talk in the book about how we, I think, uh, I think Eric did this research on, how, you know, populations in the Reconstruction era and beyond, African-American populations in the, in the Reconstruction era and beyond, you know, they weren't just, they weren't just treated badly, you know, their economic foundations were ripped away from them so that generation after generation, they had no ability to build equity, no ability to really participate in, you know, the American capitalist dream. Um, and, you know, you have to acknowledge that, that that exclusion of those populations from the American capitalist dream is absolutely by design. So I don't know, Eric, did you have anything you wanted to say? I mean, I second everything that you said. Um, there was this moment in May, I think it was on Memorial Day, weirdly, which was the moment that George Floyd was being killed, though the video didn't come out until the next day, the 26th. And I... Um, I was looking like I did every day at the Johns Hopkins, the heat map that people followed religiously in 2020, if you don't remember, um, that that had the cases and where they were in the United States. And, you know, those are still pretty early days. And the numbers of people who were getting sick each day was in the low thousands. And yet it seemed screamingly high compared to the, you know, dozens that it had been early on. And I was looking at that Johns Hopkins map and it's one of those weird things being a historian, we, you know, randomly are looking at things all the time. And I had just looked a few days earlier at the last census taken in the United States that used the term slave in 1860. And the map that Johns Hopkins had up of the belt from the Eastern bank of the Mississippi river that sort of curved around through Alabama, Georgia, and up through South and then into North Carolina and right basically to Maryland, like right around DC, that belt of slavery in the United States and the Johns Hopkins map of where cases per capita were highest were practically identical. And it gave me chills. And I thought, there you go. This is what happens. <laughs> History has sketched out the landscape in this way that here we are, you know, a, a century and a half after emancipation and yet the exact same populations that suffered under slavery, the exact same populations that suffered when the redemption, quote unquote, process took place after Reconstruction, the KKK was allowed to run wild, the exact same populations that suffered under Jim Crow and that didn't really get much from the civil rights movement, those are the same populations that are getting this virus. And because of the economic inequalities that lead to higher rates of diabetes and inability to fight off respiratory viruses. These are also the people that are going to die in this pandemic. That now is, we, well, that's common knowledge now, but in May, it was, it was freaky to see history literally superimposed upon the present on a map. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and I personally, I don't see how any of that gets 
cured without serious material redistribution, Absolutely. which I don't I don't think is in the offing anytime soon. And it's kind of frustrating as a historian because we really play in the game of narrative, and and I, I don't think changing narrative is going to have much causal force any longer. Um, I think we live in bifurcated times. I think a return to you know what has been traditionally true in American history, which is very partisan presses and things along those lines. Sort of the the Walter Cronkite era is actually very much an outlier in American history. So I'm I'm very pessimistic about the actual possibility of any sort of serious change, as recent you know Supreme Court decisions and whatnot have shown, and the, the, the Democratic Party's complete inability to actually play with the power structures of American politics. Because I don't think they really care. I think they're they're doing pretty well. They're making a lot of money, particularly the consultant class. Doesn't matter if they lose elections. How long did it take for everyone to receive a fundraising email after the Alito decision was leaked? So I, I'm pretty pessimistic. Yeah. Um, why don't we turn to a second, though, actually, to, to where three of the four of us, sorry, Derek, make our homes, which is in the university. Because earlier in the conversation, I believe it was Eric, you said there'll be dissertations written about this. And I'm not sure <laughs> there will be, because I don't think there's going to be okay. historians. Um, I think that, that basically COVID was the final nail in the coffin of professional history as a discipline that anyone who's not rich can go into. Um, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the statistics. I think it's something like three in four college faculty are adjuncts. Um, even people who go to the quote-unquote top programs aren't getting jobs any longer. I think the university structure as a whole is going to do a classic Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism here. Um, you're going to get even fewer graduate students. You're going to get more and more adjuncts, et cetera, et cetera. So I was just wondering, you know, as people who live and work in the university, what was your take on COVID's effect on uh, the university and professional humanities education? And Alabama has a PhD program, right? Yes. How did PhD students react to this? You know, what, what are what are what are they thinking? Because my my take on it, and I don't know if if you all agree, is that there's actually been a lack of intellectual excitement in the historical profession as a whole for about 10 years now. And, and the reason is, is graduate students are oftentimes a source of that excitement. And when everyone's depressed and knows that they're not going to get a tenure track job and they have to be scrambling for something else to do, it just, you lose that intellectual vigor. So I was just wondering from where you sat, what you saw um, with how the university responded to this. Can we distribute like puppies and kittens with this episode? Because otherwise, <laughs> like the most depressing thing ever. <laughs> this is uh, this is realism isn't depressing. Average depressing for us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I can I can say that um, I don't think Eric and I agree on this. Um, this is one of those things that Eric and I have sort of squabbled over. Um, I'm more hopeful than he is, which is weird because I'm a Russian historian, right? You would think I would just be constantly looking at the worst side of things, but. Um, so first of all, I want to say before we move on, Danny, you know, your your question about the causation of things has made me think about this book in a way that I never thought about before. Um, and that is that I think this book, as depressing as it is, has some hope behind it um, because we finished it right on January the 6th, 2021. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah like, not by design. <laughs> That's just how it happened. Well, we had promised that we would finish it in December of 20, like literally on, you know, January the 1st, we would send it off. Um, and then we, we took a few extra, we took like a few weeks to clean it all up and, um, uh, well, we to, wrote too many words. We, we had also to wrote a two hundred half the book. <laughs> yeah, we wrote a two hundred thousand word book um, originally, and Bacon was like, "No, we're not publishing a two hundred thousand word book." Um, and so we had to. We, we knew we were going to have to cut it down. But anyway, we we stopped writing on January the sixth. Put it that way. Yeah. And we had, I don't know. You know, it's this is one of those things that's hard to remember now. But you know, the pandemic was an exceptional experience. It didn't just feel like every other silly sort of obviously meaningless gesture at just talking about reform without making it happen. Like it did feel like something fundamental had shifted in the ground under us and that maybe this would be a wake up call for the country to really make us do something different. Finally, at the time, it really did feel like that. Now it's super depressing two years later to realize that no, like even that didn't fucking matter. Like none of it mattered. Like even that horrendous experience, we're now at like a million dead yeah, it's wild. and it still doesn't fucking matter. Right. Like <laughs> nobody still cares at all about, you know, the fact that people are dying. Like nobody still cares about the fact that when after the pandemic, for instance, white folks went back to work far more easily than black folks did. Right. Black folks had had significantly higher 
um, unemployment rates post-pandemic than white folks. But nobody cares about any of that, right? We're on to the next scandal. And it turns out that, yeah, maybe this is this is a consequence of, you know, the modern condition. And we are really just so sick that we might as well, I don't know, you know, either... I thought you were going to give the hopeful answer. Either like have a good time, <laughs> either like just party until we die or go kill ourselves. Like maybe those are our two options. I don't know. But I mean, maybe that's really the situation we're in right now. Um, or leave, just leave the freaking country. Maybe that's another option because God knows somewhere else is going to be better. Right. Well, I think, I think people are searching for meaning. I mean, and Margaret, you, you probably know this better than I as a Russianist. I think that's why the Ukraine war attracted such, you know, attention because people felt like right. finally, Americans especially <laughs> who lack all romance in their lives felt like they could like finally be behind a noble cause. Um, and so I think like you see this total lack of meaning in American, in Americans, particularly bourgeois Americans, which is a class, you know, the people who pay attention to news. News has effectively become sports. Ironically, we talk about news <laughs> more than anything right now. Now, and we probably have some of the least amount of connection to political change in, in, in modern American history, um, which is also something everything's just entertainment. But I, no, I think that's absolutely right. Um, but sorry to interrupt, because I do want to hear what you what you think about the university and the future okay. of the historical discipline yeah, yeah. and profession. Sorry. Yeah, yes, of course. Sorry. And I have to say, I have been interviewed by a bunch of people about Ukraine, a bunch of news news play stations about Ukraine. And the one thing they want me to talk about is how good it feels as like Americans to stand behind right. Ukraine. And the one thing I have to say over and over again is, yeah, like who's not going to stand up for Ukraine? It feels good to stand up for Ukraine, but we're not sending soldiers to save Ukraine. Let's be super clear. Right. And, and nobody wants me to say that anyway, about the university. My, my perspective is that there is, there is still hope. Um, it, you know, there are ways that history PhDs can still, find work um, that's satisfying, that's outside of the university. Um, we are at the University of Alabama. Our PhD students largely work in the history of the American South for obvious reasons. And we don't actually have that hard of a time um, placing our graduate students. Um, our PhD students, we do pretty well. Uh, they don't necessarily go off to places like the University of Washington, right? They don't necessarily go off to um, R1 schools, but they, you know, they, they're able to survive. We don't have, at Alabama, at least we don't have a sizable army of adjunct faculty. We are, we actually don't do adjunct faculty in the history department at, at really by and large at all. We have maybe five, um, for the whole department. Um, and even they are given full benefits and a living wage. Um, so, uh, we as a department have sort of actively rejected the adjunct model, uh, and it, we keep our graduate population um, at a reasonable size. We have lots of master's students um, who can come in and help as graduate teaching assistants, and that's how, to, how we sort of um, are able to fund. And we actually fund all of our graduate students, including our master's students. So we fund every graduate student that comes in. I mean, somehow I'm now making a plug for the, <laughs> the history department of the university. <laughs> I mean, that's rare. I mean, that's not um, the norm in this yeah. country by any yeah, stretch yeah. of the imagination. Yeah. So in our experience, at least, we're not seeing that. But, you know, I myself, right, when I finished my PhD um, coming out of Texas, um, I had friends who were finishing their PhDs at Yale and at Harvard, and they, there's, you know, they ended up having to leave academia altogether yeah, because they same. couldn't find yeah. tenure-track jobs. So, yeah, I mean, we all know that it's a depressing thing. Um, it's a depressing world that we live in. I wonder, though, if it's any more or less depressing than it's always been, um, at least in the last 20 years. Hasn't this always been the case? Haven't we always kind of tried to discourage bright students from getting PhDs in history anyway? Um, because we know well, that there it, was a it, moment between the 50s and the 70s. I mean, the, the problem is when this country thinks it's at war, it's fun. It funds social democratic things. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, this is this is, you know, the military Keynesianism, you know, from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, you could be working class and actually get an education and not go into debt and become a professor. All those New York intellectuals were effectively that. Um, but, you know, the second we re hit detente and stopped, you know, uh, the all volunteer force that went away. So, yeah, I think in some sense we're returning to the university as a space for the rich, you know, mm. which is, which is normal, <laughs> you know, it's not a good normal, but once again, capitalism wins. Right. I'm just, I'm just very skeptical about the future of this profession. I'm not sure it's going to really be vibrant or exist anymore. Already right yeah. now, I think the most vibrant intellectual spaces are outside the university. It's in the little magazines, you know, like, like when was the last, uh, this might be a little shop talk, but like, when was the last time you, you had like 
a trend to really influence the field of history as a whole. I, I mean, 20 years post-colonial theory, maybe, maybe, and not even really uh, for a lot of a lot of the subfields. Foucault, that's already 30 years old now. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that there is just less intellectual vigor in the discipline as a whole. I think uh, the development of intersectionality has become pretty great. And that scholarships in the last 10 years um, so, you know, there, there are places for that. There are places where the field is growing. I think old fashioned political history is moribund, no doubt. Um, and, uh, old fashioned military history also moribund, no doubt. Right. But there are, there are places inside the field of cultural history, I think, where folks are still doing really interesting, you know, innovative work. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. If I can piggyback on this, I'm not sure that just because majors are down, that the field is in danger. And I can't believe that I'm about to be on Margaret's positive side, but we still teach an absolute ton of students. Now they might be business majors. They might be, because I teach history of science and medicine, I would say that 80% of my students are pre-med. Of those 80% pre-med students, about 10% will actually go into medicine, but they still sit through my history class where we talk about problems that are typical historical problems problems of race and class and gender. It's just that we do it in the context of science and medicine, giving those people who are aspiring physicians a view of their field that they will not get in medical school. And many of them will write back and say, oh my God, I'm so thankful that I took your course because I had no idea these ethical issues and these issues of race, class, and gender are sprinkled all the way through my medical school experience. And then as a practice, uh, as an actual practitioner in medicine, absolutely something that gets foregrounded, but nobody talks about it except for the historians and to a lesser degree, the philosophers. So I do think that there is still, I don't know whether I call it like a, a calling, but there's still a reason to go out and, and teach history. And I think many of our students that decide to go on and get their their master's and, and doctoral degrees in history, I think that they still feel it down in, the, in their gut. Like, this is what makes life meaningful. It doesn't matter if the number of majors is declining, if I'm still getting people to stop and sort of say, what, what does all this actually mean? I mean, my, my first and last days of my, of my big survey class, so hundreds of students, we talk about like, okay, so you're here for four years what in the world is the rest of your life going to look like? And many of the students will say, this is the only time in my collegiate experience that anyone has asked me what I am studying and why am I studying it? And what do I think life is about? And what kind of job should I have? I still think we have the, that very, very, very distantly old, you know, professors as pastors in the sort of churchly university going back to Oxford and Cambridge like, I still think we do have some of that cachet, even in the modern era, even if there aren't any more history majors at all, we still can reach out to students in that sort of a way and give that kind of a perspective. Uh, oh, I, I totally agree. My concern That's not is... That's super highfalutin, though. <laughs> well, my concern is, like, if with those majors go away, where's that money going to come from? And I, I predict that, that that money to fund a lot of these positions will soon... Um, disappear. I, I think actually, weirdly, the opposite is happening. Now, we don't see tax dollars anymore. That's totally true. And the University of Alabama is on paper, a state institution funded by tax dollars, but in reality is almost all tuition dollars and private donations. Mm -hmm. But we score tons of money from older alumni who say, I didn't major in history. I instead went into business. I regret not learning about history. Here's Five million dollars. Yeah, go that is a bad model. I mean, I'm very skeptical. I mean, that of that model and the politics oftentimes I, behind I it. Agree. I agree totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it, But it's not nothing. It's not yeah. good. It's not ideal. If we don't want a system like that, well, but it's mean, not the worst. The, the bigger long term argument, right, is that it, you know here we are tying this back to the book, right? If if we really are trying to affect some kind of change in the generations that are coming up then, um, you know, what we really are trying to do is teach civilization, right? We're trying yeah. to teach what it means to be civilized. Um, we're trying to teach, you know, that civilization isn't 
Faust. It's not Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, right? Civilization. It's not an F one fifty. It's not an F one. Like civilization <laughs> is, you know, is the stories, the way we move through our life, the way we choose to interact with other people, the stories we tell our children at the dinner table, the lessons we teach and pass on, right? That's how civiliz- civilization either gets built or destroyed on a daily basis. And and those are the those are the stories that we teach over and over and over again in history, right? Um, so yeah, we need to be teaching it. Uh, in order for that to happen, um, I think that, you know, um, Eric was a part of a big task force at, at UA this, these last few years to redo the core, right, to redo our our core. And I, I won't give away any secrets. I know you, Eric, you're like, don't talk too much about don't, it, but no, um, I'll, I'll be quiet. But he was a part okay. of this big task force to do this. And I, I mean, Eric, I, I'll let you take this. But what you've told me is that again and again, you came up, you came across administrators who did value history, right? Who did understand that, you know, business students need to be taking history classes, that, that pre-med students need to be taking history classes, that we are in fact, um, supported by our administration, uh, in ways that aren't even necessarily tied to the number of majors that we're collecting. And that's because there is a population of people outside of the field who do recognize that, um, you know, citizenship isn't just learning how to make a profit, right? Citizenship isn't just learning how to develop followers on Twitter. Um, it's, you know, it's something else altogether. Um, at least that's, it's interesting. that's what I believe. No, no, totally. It's interesting just to go back to your point about how like traditional military and diplomatic history is done in an era where the United States has killed almost a million people in the last 20 years in its wars. And I've always been curious about that as a phenomenon, the, the, the sort of like apex of American power and American damage around the world over the last 30 years was uh, w- came along with the, like, the decline of traditional military history. There seems to be some connection there that, that a scholar who is not me is worth exploring. That it, It's very ironic. I wrote a paper about this with Fred Logaval. <laughs> At the moment of American mili- diplomatic, you know, we are the empire. We took a global turn that sort of um, de-exceptionalizes the United States at the very moment when its exceptionalism is so glaringly obvious. Mm. That's, and, and that, again, is just history basically being what it's always been, which is in the service of the state in, so, in, some, in some regard, in the service of the national state, whether conscious or not. Um, I mean, Sorry, I think Mark, there is a, I think reply? there is a pushback. I mean, political history isn't dead. It's just that old fashioned political history is dead, you know, um, like the, the new the, political history volume that just came out. Like, um, yeah, it's good. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I don't think that political history as a field is dead. It's just that, you know, the, the telling of the stories of great white men and how they changed the world, like that is dead. <laughs> um, or at least that's, I mean, there's still a huge market for that. And people, but we'll still always buy those books, right? Those are still the books that you're going to be able to sell to a press more easily than anything else. But in the field, at least, right, there's this acknowledgement that we can't just go around telling the stories of dead white men anymore, right? Like, and, and I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. Uh, I'm actually really on board with that, right? And we need to be paying attention to um, the voices of populations who've otherwise been ignored um, as shapers of history, right? As shapers of, of the American political landscape. Um, so, you know, these sure, are things sure, that do matter. Yeah. I, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I certainly wouldn't deny that. The question is when one is assigning causal agency uh, in the world and, and, and what the United States empire has actually done to the world. I think there is a, a fundamental responsibility there that could sometimes be occluded when uh, different sorts of groups are assigned equal agency. It's a bad agency, I would say. You know, it's an agency that I consider to be immoral. But, you know, the, when the United States interacts and invades countries, that, that, is, that is an agentive force in history that is unlike something that we've seen before. And I think the field sometimes, um, for various reasons, has has underplayed that um and it's not necessarily about you know just dead white men i mean if it's what's really interesting in the last 30 years of diplomatic history is how many women have ascended to incredibly high positions of power condoleezza rice hillary clinton Anne marie slaughter rose goda mueller um etc etc so i think a gender analysis could absolutely be very useful i'm just talking about the, like the pure use of american power uh and and the pure the, the sort of use of military technology to to destroy and harm um the world but that's a little off topic we should probably uh derek you had a final question uh yeah i think i mean i think we're a good place to to um wrap up lengthwise but i I wanted to get you both to talk just briefly and this is not i'm not asking you to like predict the future or uh, you know (laughs) do any analysis but just your your impressions after having done this project and and lived this you know kind of 
year of uh, a global crisis. You know, admittedly, your focus was, um, you know, mostly on, on what was happening in, in the United States. Uh, but you talked earlier about observing the way that, you know, profound inequality made a response to the pandemic so uh, impossible, basically. Not, and not just profound inequality, but a sort of lack of awareness of that inequality in the places where news is made, in the, on the coasts, as you, as you said earlier. Um, I think that can be extrapolated to a global context where you have, again, the places where news is made, and then you have the places where there is profound poverty, uh, people, you know, don't, in, in food insecurity, and the ways that the plan the, the the international community is equipped or not equipped to respond to global challenges like this pandemic like climate change like a future pandemic that may be you know even more serious than than this one and i'm curious if you if if doing this project changed in any way your outlook on how humanity can manage these sorts of events. Uh, and maybe it didn't, maybe you were already as pessimistic as, as <laughs> I have been for a long time. Uh, but, but I'm curious <laughs> if it, if it sort of shook you to, to watch this play out and uh, think about, you know, what, what may be down the road, what may be happening. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll go for, you know, if you think about the grand, ex the greatest example of global mobilization, right. It's the second world war. And even then, <laughs> it took forever to get the allies together. And in reality, they did not, they were never really together. And Churchill was perfectly happy letting the Hun lead the Bolshe white. And, um, you know, so getting, uh, I'm sorry, that was such a history in the weeds comment, but sorry. Anyway, the, the <laughs> point is that, um, you know, like, <laughs> if anything, this bodes very poorly for our ability to address the crisis of global warming. Right. Uh, because we we can't uh, we, we weren't, weren't able to come together in an effective way to manage um, the pandemic. Now, there there was this and this actually we talked about this in the book. Right there. If 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 we just look at the invention of the vaccine. Right. If we just if we wrap the whole history of the pandemic and I'm sure this is what textbooks will do, right? They're going to wrap the whole history in the pandemic and this grand little story that's going to be, well, there was a lot of people that died. It was a really bad year, but Pfizer and Moderna, these great, you know, these great, these great drug companies, they invented these amazing vaccines and they saved millions of lives and they, they, um, embraced a distribution model that hit populations, you know, faster than ever seen before. And look, here's another side. That, that human beings have gotten better at being human beings, right? Progress, progress, progress. Like that's very likely going to be the narrative that we're going to find in textbooks moving forward. Um, because that, that fits, that fits the, the, the larger post enlightenment sort of human progress narrative. Right. Um, but at the same time, I think that honestly, Derek, I'm, um, I'm on board with you with on your <laughs> pessimistic view of this, that there, I don't see us being, I mean, I see, I think we're fucked. Like, <laughs> I think we're fucked. We tend to I'm agree. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I will say like my, I mean, I, I've been pessimistic about uh, handling, like dealing with climate change for a long time, I think. But the pandemic like really took me to another level to the point where I, I thought, you know, literally you're going to have people who are ankle deep in water who are okay with that as long as the guy next to them is up to his neck or something. I mean, like yeah. there's the, the just so much refusal to, to look at the world around you and what's going on and kind of uh, make the decisions that need to be made or the choices that need to be made. And I, I'm sorry, I, I'm interrupting, but you know, Eric, maybe you can uh, offer your perspective. Yeah, and, Eric, and we'll, send us uh, off on, we'll a, on a super there. positive yeah. or super give us, negative Give note. us something to hold on to. No, just, so I don't one, want to put that One of on. my favorite characters in recent television history is Rust Cole from the first season of The Detective. <laughs> Time's a flat Time's circle, a flat man. Circle. <laughs> I mean, look, I study what disease has done to humanity over the last 2,500 years as part of my job. I, nothing that happened in this pandemic was surprising. What's surprising is that we keep trying to paint the picture as if everything is better, everything is better, oh shit, it's worse, right? And we keep building our hopes up and then our hopes collapse. But if you look at the long durée, right, of, of human history, not just American history, we go in these big cycles. And the Black Death 
killed an untold number of people, smallpox, ripped through people, the measles plus smallpox plus stuff we probably don't even know about, just absolutely decimated Native Americans in North and South America. And then humanity continued on. And so I guess the, the, there, the silver lining to the cloud is even when islands start going under the waves, humanity will find a way. Even when the next pandemic comes and kills 10 million people, 50 million people, <laughs> Jesus humanity will find a, a way. Just like in the Matrix, <laughs> but we will just find a, a way. Yeah, it's like, like 12 monkeys. <laughs> it is, I mean, like the ultimate pessimism is that what? Humans go extinct? I just don't see that happening. I mean, is it that the country, the United States ceases to exist? Well, guess what? Human history suggests that will happen. There will be some other entity that takes this How of land. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> it might be called something else. Uh, the Canticle for Leibowitz, one of my favorite books yeah, of all time, book. right? It yeah. is, is this kind of, it's weird, it's pessimistic, but it's not really pessimistic. It's just this kind of like, look, on a significant enough timeline, the stuff that's already happened is just going to happen again. It's just going to have different clothes on when it comes. And does that make us happy or does that make us sad? Okay, I don't so know. then why do we study history? Why should because so who wants to again. work a nine to five? Come on. <laughs> because we, we <laughs> that's why I study history. <laughs> because we don't experience that, right? We don't experience these grand cycles of time. We don't experience thousands. We experience what's right in front of us. And so I think the charge is always exactly the same. And again, not to be too Pollyannish about it, but the charge is always, you got some people sitting in front of you. You need to move them from this point of ignorance to this point of a slightly less ignorance. Why? Well, the hope is because then they too will go and move some other people towards slightly less ignorance. And if enough of us are doing that enough of the time, maybe in a tiny little localized bubble of wherever we are in the world, it will be slightly better for people who have not gotten the good side of anything, right? And so I know it sounds all social justice warrior whatever, but there is this kind of like think globally act locally thing. I think that's just part of the DNA of being a historian. And that, at least to me, is a little hopeful. And that's why American Prestige is investing all of its money in the metaverse. Eric Peterson <laughs> and Margaret Peacock, right. thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, please check out their book, A Deeper Sickness, A Journal of America in the Pandemic Year. Thanks. Thank you. We really, thank this is an amazing you, conversation. Thank you so much. 